0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Imagine a world where common defense is provided voluntarily. Though it's not been perfect and the potential costs of getting it wrong are quite large, Ukraine has tried something like that. Garrett Wood researches the economics of defense. He argues that in the case of Ukraine crowdfunding its defense, there are many possible lessons. We spoke earlier this month. Before we started recording, you were describing some of the uh, changes that were made in the structure of defense in Ukraine. And I thought, this sounds like a Robert Heinlein novel. The idea that there could be, in a sense, a charitable way to provide for a common defense. Uh, but what are what are some of the problems that we face uh, in general when we think about providing a defense for
1: a geographic area? You know, the first and most obvious is probably the uh, free rider problem that we were discussing, right? So again, that matters uh, what kind of scale you're looking at. If we were talking about that ballistic missile defense, it's very easy for a particular citizen in a country that is you know, being shielded from a ballistic missile attack to free ride on the provision of um, interceptor missiles it's a lot harder to free ride when you change the scale of defense. Uh, You know, so that example, again, you know, if we're neighbors and uh, there's a gang of thieves and they are robbing you and robbing me, well, if I defend my home, uh, it does not provide much of an externality to you. It might provide a negative externality. It could. Because they they just say, hey guys, this guy's protected. Let's go hit this other guy's house. Yeah, uh, they might all roll over to your house and it might be a bit of a problem for you. But that's the, that's the issue. When we're talking about the externalities uh, created by defense, you really have to keep the scale of the thing in mind right? So if you change the scale, you change the nature of the problem. And that's a lot of what we're looking at here with these charitable organizations. Uh, they were trying to change the scale of the problem such that people felt more comfortable donating because they knew that the defense that was going to be provided was going to be local to them, or at least better concentrated on them.
0: So uh, in, in the case of Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, we know that the annexation of Crimea by uh, Russia was a a big problem and it shook up a lot of uh,
1: confidence in that region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what did that practically mean? So for Ukraine and for the citizens of Ukraine and then for the separatists that are operating in the east of Ukraine, it was really a very credible signal. Uh, Russia took Crimea with, uh, to the best of my knowledge, not a shot fired. And you can see some interesting pictures of, you know, Russian forces that are not necessarily uh, properly uniformed or ID'd. Just calmly walking Ukrainian officials out of their military posts and out of Crimea altogether. It's uh, it's bizarrely calm. That calmness indicates to everybody watching that Ukraine did not have the muscle to put up a fight there. You know they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the training, and uh, maybe they didn't even have the will. Uh, the people really looking for that signal are the separatists, the very you know kind of pro-Russian separatists in the east of Ukraine, specifically in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. And they see that as, you know, a opportunity, right? If uh, if the Ukrainians are unwilling to do much about Crimea, perhaps they'll be unwilling to do much about a uh, push for us to separate into our own territories. All right. So tell us about the Ukrainian military. Uh, it was a, a pretty bad state. Um, for years prior to this, uh, Ukraine had been kind of hovering in top 30, top 50 most corrupt nations in the world. And obviously that's going to extend to their military as well. And it took a couple of uh, particular forms that are worth noting. So Corruption in the military, uh, one of the ways that that gets expressed is Ukraine was very dependent on conscripts um, at this time, and they've gotten more volunteers as the war has progressed, as uh, as people get a little bit more patriotic about it, but they were working predominantly with with conscripts. The officers in charge of those conscripts would look at this as a situation to get unpriced, you know, involuntary labor to do whatever they wanted with. So very often you would have uh, officers using these conscripts to make improvements to their homes or repairs on their homes. Uh, running errands for them, all that kind of stuff takes away from training time, right? So it's undermining the competence of the average Ukrainian conscript soldier. On top of that, you have more uh, typical varieties of corruption. So bribes, if you got posted somewhere in Ukraine uh, as a serviceman or servicewoman, and you didn't like the posting and you had the money, you could bribe your way out of it. Uh, Certain positions commanded higher bribes, particularly those around contracting. Um, So if you got a contracting position, and were a little corrupt yourself, you could use that as an opportunity to make some kickbacks, make a little bit of money on the side. So bribes for those positions tended to be you know, a little bit higher. Uh, you could also bribe yourself out of you know, potentially a combat posting if you wanted to. All of that is sapping the efficiency with which the Ukrainian military is operating. Uh, embezzlement was another issue and, and maybe one of the more interesting issues uh, that is unique amongst the militaries I've looked at uh, in all my research so far is that Ukraine had something called the special fund. Um, So the Ukrainian parliament would tell the Ukrainian military that this is gonna be your budget for the year, and here is X number of dollars towards that budget. Whatever the parliament did not give to the military had to be made up by the military itself by sale of their own assets. Now, an economist might look at that and go, okay, this is interesting. Uh, Perhaps they're gonna sell off their least valuable assets and use the money to buy something a little bit more valuable. That's the way it should work in a perfect world. Uh, That's not the way it worked in Ukraine. So special fund wound up being an avenue for a very corrupt government and its very corrupt military to sell off otherwise very valuable assets and then pocket a little bit of the difference by kind of undervaluing them in the form of kickbacks. So this thing that was meant to get the Ukrainian military the rest of the way to their funding requirements wound up being a huge avenue for corruption. All of this winds up... uh, really impairing what the Ukrainian military can do in terms of defense. So what's the, what was the fix? The fix, uh, in well, my, we should say it was an attempted,
0: an, an attempted, attempted fix, a fix and yeah. the jury may, may still be out on how effective it
1: ultimately will be. It is, uh, I think it's fair to call it a mixed bag. Um, but the good stuff that's in there is really interesting. So The attempted fix is uh, voluntary provision of defense, which is not something you typically hear talked about in academic uh, circles or certainly not in in policy circles. Uh, This takes the form of both volunteer battalions, that is volunteer fighting units, and that's uh, another subject that I'm doing research on, uh, so that's still in the works. This uh, this subject that I did the research on has a lot more to do with crowdfunding of defense. That is, people who like a particular defense project, we'll call it, uh, voluntarily donating to that project to make sure that some kind of defense is provided um, once the project is completed. Um, what what the Ukrainians kind of found their way into was a small group of charities focused really particularly on providing, um, infantry supplies. So we're talking about things like body armor, uh, rifle slings, um, magazines, magazine pouches, perhaps heaters for, um, troops deployed in cold weather. the reason they focus so heavily on these, uh, infantry supplies is that's exactly where the Ukrainian government was not focusing. That is, where the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military was spending a lot of money on, say, tanks or jets, things that are bigger projects, maybe a little bit easier to hide corruption in. You could think of the joint strike fighter uh, domestically if you wanted to. Uh, Not as much opportunity for kickbacks and and corruption with, you know, just say, uniforms or rifles. Uh, it's, It's kind of small potatoes. So the uh, Ukrainian infantry was sort of left out of this procurement process. They wind up being underfunded and unable to do much in the way of, say, screening for tanks or providing uh, ground cover for overhead operation of um, Ukrainian aircraft. But since that's the thing that was lacking because of Ukraine's corrupt uh, military, that's the thing that the private charities were focused on. And the private charities reckoned that Uh, And the people donating to them reckoned that if you could get the Ukrainian uh, infantry up to snuff, they could at least hold their own in a sort of uh, low intensity kind of light infantry battle, which is what this war is sort of stalemated into. And at best, if the Ukrainian government got back on its feet and put out some good tanks, put out some good jets... The infantry could operate in support of those and keep the Ukrainian government from suffering the sorts of losses that it did early on in the war, where they lost um, or had severely degraded about two thirds of their armored vehicles, and they wound up having to ground their air force in response to uh, separatist surface-to-air missiles. And, and practically speaking, that's that's important.
0: That is yes. the, the idea of having uh, forces on the ground to prevent the use of surface-to-air missiles. Is a you know it's a very hard-nosed practical. Thing that you might ought to do,
1: yeah, yeah, and and it's important for, uh, like I said, for screening for armored vehicles as well. Uh, the Russians learned this the hard way, I think, fighting the Chechens. In one, of the, in one of the Chechen cities where Chechen infantry or, or Chechen uh, freedom fighters were essentially able to drop Molotovs or other explosives on Russian vehicles um, from convenient you know, building locations and then sort of fade away. And the reason that the Russians lost so many vehicles uh, during their, their fights with the Chechens is because they didn't have infantry screens moving through the cities to protect them. So it really is uh, a source of vulnerability and something that the uh, Ukrainian charities were correct to target. So to the extent that these charities are supporting volunteer military
0: forces, I can imagine that that could go south pretty quick.
1: It could. Um, And I should be clear that they supported both volunteer military forces and um, government forces that actually stayed to fight. There were a number of government forces that elected to run away uh, from the separatists rather than fight, but there were some that held their ground. And these charities would support either. Whoever was doing the fighting, they were there to support. Um, To the extent that it's possible they could have supported the wrong people, um, there are a lot of concerns that I've seen raised over this kind of thing where, you know, okay, if the government's not the one providing defense— then who rises up to replace them is likely to be some kind of warlord, and that's a fair charge. I get that. Um, it's it's worth noting that the Ukrainian citizens who supported these efforts probably knew that too, and they, you know, in the final analysis, would rather have some kind of Ukrainian warlord than a Russian warlord. Now it winds up not devolving to that level uh, for reasons that have to do a little bit with you know the other research I'm doing. But it turns out that uh, a lot of these donations really did just go to people who just wanted to fight, right? They just wanted to recapture territory and to keep Russians out of Ukraine. Um, Certainly, there were some that abused their positions afterwards. Uh, There were a couple of volunteer battalions that wound up looting Ukrainian citizens in the process of, quote unquote, providing defense. Um, The Ukrainian state did manage to use the dissatisfaction of their citizens who had been looted. To kind of uh, provide cover for um, legal cases against those battalions, and they were disbanded. Um, But no, you're right. It could have been uh, quite an issue. It hasn't turned out to be one yet. The free rider problem. Yeah. It continues to be a problem it does probably more of a problem for uh government provided defense than it is for the charitably provided defense there's a there's an easy way to think about this so um i might be getting ahead of myself here there's a the measure of effectiveness that i was kind of looking at for um the publicly provided defense versus the uh privately you know or private uh charitably provided defense really just comes down to uh, dollars donated. So in the early days of the war, the Ukrainian military uh, does put together a text charity campaign. Uh, so they understand that they are in a very bad way, that they're going to need support from the public. And that if you wanted to, as a Ukrainian citizen or a citizen from outside of Ukraine, uh, if you wanted to, you could text this number and you would wind up donating about 50 cents to the Ukrainian military. And you can do that as many times as you want. That campaign is so successful at first, that they raised $2 million in two days. That's not bad. Uh, About a year, year and a half later, though, they've kind of petered out at about $6 million. So you you had a very uh, sharp, uh, sudden increase in funding that also then fell off sharply. It's still positive, but it fell off quite a bit. Um, $6.6 million in a year, year and a half time, not bad. Compare that to um, private charitable donations, which start around the same time. In the same time frame that the public text campaign was operational, the private campaign, the private charities raised uh, $7.76 million. So how did the charities uh, establish
0: their credibility with the public that we're going to make sure we're going to do these things? Were they explaining tactically? Here's what we want to do. These are the projects
1: that we want to put together. Uh, they were doing some of that. Uh, and this is a great question because if you are a Ukrainian citizen, uh, who has been, you know, donating say to the military in the hopes that they were going to get their act together and reform, you were severely disappointed and you don't want to be twice bitten when you donate to a, a private charity. And the charities did a lot of work to make sure that they were transparent and trustworthy. The, uh, the charity that this paper focuses on is people's project, which is still active today. And I encourage you and your listeners to go look at it. It's really interesting. Uh, It is like a Kickstarter for uh, Ukrainian military projects. What that means is that you can find a project you like. So let's say that you are a uh, Ukrainian citizen in the city of Donetsk, uh, perhaps even near the Donetsk airport. You go and you find on people's project that there is a project devoted, and this is real, devoted to the defense of the Donetsk airport, where a major battle was raging for quite a while. Since you are close to uh, that place, it makes a lot of sense for you to donate to uh, the defense of that place, and People's Project sets you at ease by telling you a where the money's going, what the breakdown of the donations are going to be. So, to what uh, forms of support are they going to go? When they have been dispersed, there is a uh, contact information for the project manager. That is, there's a name and a phone number. You can contact the person who's managing it and ask whatever questions you like. There's records of all the donations and the amount and the day that they were donated. On top of that. The project manager was usually under obligation from People's Project to produce some evidence that whatever uh, assets they had um, donated to you know the the group doing uh, the defending of a particular area, they had to produce paperwork uh, with a signature from the person you know say from that volunteer battalion saying that they had received those goods, and then that would be posted to the project site. On top of that. Uh, People's Project was unique amongst the rest of these charities in the fact that they pursued yearly audits with Ernst and Young, which they then posted the audit reports on their financials uh, portion of their website. So they were independently audited, and then on top of that, uh, they received, I believe, yearly—I think for every year that they've been operating, uh, maybe with the exception of one—they have received awards from kind of an oversight committee of Ukrainian uh, charities that testify to the quality of their work. So it's like a charity navigator. It is like a charity navigator. And all of that is posted on their site. And all of that, of course, is not you know perfect information for the person who would like to donate to their own defense through People's Project. But it's an awful lot more information than you would get for the government. So you text that uh, text campaign for the public support and your 50 cents goes to the government. You have no idea where it goes. That could go to a tank, which winds up maybe in the region you would like to see defended, could wind up going to international peacekeeping services, which Ukrainian forces were simultaneously engaged in, in which case you get none of the benefit of the defense. Yeah, I wonder about
0: that because uh, you might think that uh, the Ukrainian military, having seen the effectiveness of this campaign, the provision of the, the high level of transparency, uh, and providing, in some cases, complementary. Defense services that actually would benefit uh, the military as well, that they would say, maybe we should do some of this transparency
1: stuff here. Be nice. Uh, Of course, that's going to cost the people who are making a living off of corruption within the military. So, you know, I imagine there's a special interest story there. So the, the incentive then to reform, unclear. Yeah. Um, and surprising, I think. In fact, I would say it even caught the Ukrainian citizens by surprise because it's not like they didn't know their government uh, and its military were corrupt, either You know, in the lead up to this war or in the early days of the war. I think the reason you saw you know $2 million in two days for that public campaign was because Ukrainian citizens were hoping that the shock of the war, the exogenous shock of the war, was going to cause some level of reform within the military, and it just didn't materialize. Um, in fact, you have Transparency International coming in early on in the war to work with um, Ukraine's defense industrial complex to try and you know, make some of the reforms you were talking about. Like, look, it was successful over here. Why don't we do it within the military itself or within the defense industrial complex? Uh, and after, I think, a couple of years of trying to work with them, uh, Transparency International just you know, throws their hands up and says, we can't. You're unwilling to reform, um, so there's no point in continuing this relationship.
0: What avenues of research does this open up?
1: Um, a, th- a few, I think. the The biggest is just you know, okay, what other, um, what other circumstances would you expect to see voluntary provision of defense pop up in? This is, I think, the most obvious, uh, the best fleshed out that I have seen so far. But there's probably cases to be made um, for. Uh, various forms of Kurdish self-defense operating in the Middle East. I think that uh, they probably exhibit some of these same patterns. Um, And I know that at least a few people have uh, made their way over to um, those Kurdish forces by way of GoFundMe campaigns, which has some of the same kind of feel of this crowdfunding stuff. Um, So I, I think that there are other you know, probably smaller scale examples that we could be looking for in terms of academic research in terms of, you know, some policy implications to me, this suggests that you are, well, let me put it this way. If you are either a voter or a policymaker, and it's in your head that we need to go defend some ally because they are too weak to do it themselves, that could be the case. It might also be the case that they are relying on our commitment to not do the sorts of funding that Ukraine has been able to do for itself, right? So it would have been easy for people to argue, "Hey, Ukraine is incapable of of fending off the Russians, uh, or at least Russian-backed separatists. Therefore, we need to step in." And I think that's a very, uh, very common kind of foreign policy point that you would see in the U.S. You need to step in on behalf of people who are incapable of defending themselves. But the question is, are they incapable of defending themselves, or? Have they just not tried this approach yet? Or are they unwilling to try this approach? And if the answer is that they're unwilling to do something like crowdfund their own defense, imperfect as that may be, but if they're unwilling to do something like that, then what are the long-term implications of the U.S. coming in to do it for them? Um, and so, that,
0: that story has played out in a number of instances for about the U.S. military in the last 20 years.
1: Yeah. You know, and that, that causes overreach. You know, um, that causes, you know, our own forces to be spread perhaps too thin, uh, even if you assume away the problem that, you know, perhaps our own forces are um, encouraging, you know, more attacks or more hostility. Garrett Wood is a researcher in the economics
0: of defense. We spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.